One other thing, I am the youth pastor, so kickback is coming up very quickly. That's our end of summer start of the school year retreat. It is not too late to sign up. So parents, if you haven't gotten there or you have forgotten, speaking of the tyranny of the urgent, it is now semi-urgent, but don't let it be tyrannical. Just remember to get your kids signed up. It's not too late. And if they have a sports conflict Friday, even Saturday morning or Monday, we can work that out. Possibly contact me and we'll see what we can figure out to help get your kid up there for part of it. Um, Studies have shown that camp is good for long-term faith. Uh, I can point you to that if you're interested. Send me an email and I'll track down a link and you can read all the long study information or you can just trust me, whichever way you want to go with that. We're going to be in Romans 12 and 13. We have a lot to tackle today, but I want to talk about another road. We have been talking about the Roman road, chapters 1 through 11, the gospel, that long-form gospel that Paul lays out. But I want to talk to you about a different one. It's one that you're familiar with. Many of you, or some of you at least, travel it on a daily basis. I encountered it first in 1985. That was a very long time ago. Some of you, it was longer than your lifetime. Some of you, it's not even close to your lifetime. And that's okay, whichever point you land. You've traveled this road, maybe even to get here, and it's the 101. It's our favorite freeway. It's our only freeway, actually, in this part of the woods uh, or the Central Coast. But I encountered it in 1985 when my family moved from L.A. up to San Luis Obispo. We actually made the move in 86 Spent a night in Solvang, killed all of our animals on accident. Not quite. The dog and cat made it, and the desert tortoise was just fine, but they had a freeze when we stayed at the hotel. We lost all of the fish and all of the little critters. It was not a great start on the Central Coast traveling up the 101, but it became a road that I would travel for my lifetime. I didn't expect it. I had no um, anticipation including when Tiffany and I spent our honeymoon in Solvang. I didn't know we would live 30 minutes up the road for the rest of our life. I'm happy about that, but we might have picked a different honeymoon destination had we realized how close we'd be to that city. Um, in, 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 sorry, excuse me, in 2015, the same time, by the way, that I encountered the Roman road in real life, we went to Israel in January, but in March... We drove up the 101 to Oregon to do a wedding for a missionary, a set of missionaries at the time. They're now in Gallup at Rehoboth. That's our connection with them. But I went up to marry them. We had encountered them on the reservation through YouthWorks, the organization that we had gone with. Uh, They each had served there at different times, bumped into each other. We got to know them, Tiffany and I and our group. Uh, And so they'd asked me to do the wedding. And we thought, let's go up early. And let's drive the 101. How many of you have been up the 101 past San Francisco? It changes up there. It becomes old school 101. If you have only driven like me most of my life between L.A. and the Central Coast, you go above San Francisco and it slows down to 25 miles an hour as it splits in two and there are businesses in the middle of the 101 because it goes through a town. It becomes one lane at different points. And my favorite was when I realized after we crossed one what the sign meant when it said there was one lane going across the bridge. Fortunately, the light was green as we went across the bridge that first time. I drove over to the other side and realized there are cars looking at me. They actually meant a one-lane bridge. 
It's the beautiful 101. It's an amazing road. As I said, some of you travel it every day to Santa Barbara or up towards San Luis Obispo and different places to commute. My uncle, if I ever tell an uncle story, the crazy or the creepy uncle or whatever, I am not talking about my uncle. My uncle's awesome. But he drove from Buena Park to downtown LA his entire career. I love the five, the five freeway, but that is not an exciting stretch of the five freeway. It's the same time, theoretically, we all know how LA works, as the commute to Santa Barbara, but I would take the Santa Barbara commute every day over an LA commute because our stretch of the road is beautiful. We're going to transition from good, the gospel, to good sanctification. We're just going to change roads. It's still the Romans road because it's going through the book of Romans. But this one, here's a total dad joke for you, but this one is Paul's 101 ways to live holy, the 101 freeway, if you will. We're switching from the gospel, the the old school Romans road way to share the gospel to, I didn't actually count them up. If you go through that and you only come up with 98 different things that Paul says, there's a bunch of them. But just think of it as the 101. We have this beautiful cruise through God's creation, and it's telling us how to live a life of faith. So we're just switching from one road to the other one. We're going to pick up at Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. I meant to get to this, this last week, and I ran out of time. We're going to get through all two of these chapters one way or the other because next week we're tackling Romans 14 and 15, which is a long discussion of one thing, how to get along when you disagree with another Christian. But Romans 12 and 13, there are so many sites. It's like cruising the 101 and just getting beautiful view after beautiful view, but also challenge after challenge from Paul. Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I didn't know if I was going to read that straight or try to give you the mostly NIV and partly mashup of all the versions that I've memorized that in. How many of you have, have come across that time and time again, and you can't even keep it straight in your head now, which is which version, but you have a solid version of that. You know it. You've heard it. If you're not there yet, great. It's a good set of verses to memorize. Start out on that, but this is what it lays out. In my head, it's a, I call it the possibly NIV-ish when I quote it by memory, so that might pop out at some point. But first it says, therefore. You might have heard it before. I think I've said it before in here. Therefore should point you backwards. It's, it's a turn of the phrase, and it's a cheesy one, but it totally sticks. What's the therefore, therefore? You're always supposed to ask that. But this one should be all caps. All capital. Not the new meaning of cap, but all capital. Massive billboard. Go back and think it through. First, to that doxology that we read to start this morning, Romans eleven thirty three to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches. That's where he's just coming from. But also, all of chapter 1 through 11. It's a massive turn from, here's the gospel, condemned, saved, no longer condemned. I confused the heck out of you last week. He's amazing. And now let's talk about how to live in light of this. 
Romans 12 through 15 is all application. How you live because you've enjoyed grace. How you live out the gospel. Another way to put it is love and submission. You're going to hear both of those throughout, sometimes called out by name, and often just the living out of submitting to God and the gospel or the government in 13 and loving other people. It's all application. So that therefore just says, because you were condemned but are no longer, because you enjoy Christ's sacrifice, because even though you struggle like Romans 7, it's still okay. You cannot be stripped away from Christ because of all of that. Now live as a sacrifice to God. Live holy, not to earn his favor. You already have it. Legally and relationally, you cannot enjoy more of God's love other than experience, experientially, excuse me, experiencing it. You have it all. It's whether or not you're going to enjoy it. But he has no more to pour out on you because it's already overflowing all over you. So therefore, going back to everything, I appeal to you, live this way, by the mercies of God. Notice that word mercies. It's not his justice. Don't live holy because God is just. That's a good reason, but that's not why we live holy. Don't live holy because God is amazing. Paul just talked about that. Instead, we live holy because God is merciful. He really loves us. And that impacts us. And it impacts how we relate to each other, which is quite a bit of what he's going to explain. It's not justice. It's not mercy. It's the gospel. Mercy and, I'm sorry, not majesty, but the gospel, mercy and grace. That's why we live this way as living sacrifices. And you're not supposed to think of the communion table. You're supposed to think of the tabernacle and temple, the altar. You're supposed to go back to um, a father and his son and God providing a lamb. But instead of the lamb, he says, no, really, the lamb's been provided, but you crawl up on that altar, but it's okay. You're not going to die. It's all of that mashed together. Be living sacrifices and you'll be holy and acceptable or and, be, and you are or because you are holy and acceptable. We've gone from condemned and from not condemned to actually holy. That's the turn that's happening in these two, two verses. That's the turn that happens through the gospel and because of the gospel. We actually are still on the Romans road, even though we're cruising down a beautiful spot of it in terms of holiness and all these different things to see. We're just traveling down the gospel still. It's the implications of the gospel, though. It's not an earning. That's already been addressed in Romans 4. There is no earning. It's a living out of it. And then it says, and depending on which version you're using, it's either spiritual, that's the most common, or if you hear the youth group quote it, which we aren't doing as much because this is an older theme now, but they will do it a little bit at kickback and possibly do it this way. At my house, we do this this way quite often. Spiritual, reasonable, rational, intelligent. We go Amplified Bible on that one, although Amplified leaves one of those out. Those are all ways you could translate that word. It's logicon. It's actually logiku, O-U. It's a conjugation of it. 
the, the Greek would be logikos, but logikon sounds cooler when you're making a t-shirt because it sounds like Comic-Con. And so we made it an apologetics conference theme as if we were having our own up there. And it's used that way in another conjugation in another verse which Pastor Benji preached on, which is when I first bumped into that and, and thought, ooh, that's a kickback theme right there. But spiritual, that would make sense to us. That's how we usually translate it. Yes, living sacrifice, living in light of the gospel, living holy, that would be a spiritual act, a spiritual practice. But if you've ever encountered people that challenge your faith as blind faith with no intelligence attached to it, you need to know this word because it can be translated this, this way and it absolutely means this. Spiritual, not devoid from, but instead including reasonable. This is the reasonable response to the gospel is to live holy. Rational. This is the rational response to God forgiving you is to enjoy that grace and live holy. Spiritual, reasonable, rational, intelligent. This is the intelligent choice. That's not blind faith. That's an engaged mind. In fact, it's a transformed mind. Do not be conformed to this world any longer, just living out passions. Paul talks about that quite a bit in his letters. But instead, living with eternity in mind and grace in mind and enjoying God's love and mercy and living reasonably, rationally, intelligent, and spiritual, holy. Don't be conformed, but be transformed, specifically transformed by the renewal of your mind. How do we do that? Well, one, it just happens to you. All of this holiness is something that is passively happen, happening to you because God's making it happen, even though he's telling you to also be actively engaged in it. Both are happening. If you do nothing as a Christian, God is still working on you, and he's going to be bringing this about. And he commands you, engage in this with me. Be transformed. By the renewal, renewing of your mind. Paul doesn't spell out how on renewing your mind, but scripture tackles this at different points. I'll give you three, and you can go find them. I can give you a couple of them, verses that would, would emphasize this, but you can go find them. It's all over scripture. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind through his word. That's foundational. If you're not in God's word, you're not going to be transformed in your mind as quickly. God's still working on you. He'll make it happen. But your growth is going to be stunted in living out your faith, not enjoying his grace, but experientially enjoying his grace, not having his grace, I should say, but enjoying that experience of it. Be transformed by his word. Be transformed by worship. Men especially, women are a little better at this, this than us men, but men especially, there might have been a time in your life, you might still be in it, where you didn't really get the whole worship thing that we do in music. Like, I'm not a singer, I mean, I sang to her to steal her heart, but then I stopped because I got it. It's, it's not really my thing. I don't like my voice, whatever. As opposed to being David and just saying, I don't care. I'm in on worship. He's amazing. And you start singing, standing or kneeling. If you watch me, I usually, I talk about this with the group. I don't usually stand and put my hands up. I'm a Baptist. 
You can do that as a Baptist, by the way. I grew up Baptist. I usually, though, sink down, and I'll start playing the drums on my knees. If you ever see me, it's funny. Back when we had the late service, I'd throw a black hoodie on, and sometimes they couldn't tell if I just walked in and they didn't know me or if it was me sitting back there in the dark. Black hoodie, sometimes I'm really big at the top of that ramp. I don't think about it because I still think of myself as a skinny little high school kid, but throw that hoodie on, and they're like, who's the guy we don't know in the back? And then they see me drumming because I get into worship. They're like, oh, it's James. It's good. Side note, I also got called the church bouncer one time because of how I looked back there. It was kind of funny. I'm like, oh, never thought of that. But yeah, let's have a conversation. Come back here. But by worship, engage in it. We have an amazing God. What else is worth singing about? Football just started up. You sing dumb lines about your football team with no shame. And then you walk into church and like, no, this one's not for me. I'm just going to sit here quietly. I might make it through the sermon and I'll walk out. Engage. It will change your mind. Transform it. And then the last one, Philippians 4, 8, by whatever. Thinking about the whatever is true, whatever is noble. Go read the verse. It lists them all. That will change and transform your mind and lead you to this discerning the will of God. By testing, you'll learn what is good and acceptable and perfect. And by the way, it is not a twisted game. The will of God is entirely knowable and livable. Now, the specifics aren't always, and that's usually what we want when we say that phrase. I want to know the will of God. But he tells us through his word and through his people and through worship. He leads us to his will, primarily through his word, by the way. The others tend to affirm that and confirm it. But also, he specifically, in his word, tells us what the will of God is. We just don't like it when we hear it. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 to 5, chapter 5, 16 through 18, 1 Peter 2, 15, and 1 Peter 4, 2, all specifically state, this is the will of God for you. And one of the things that it mentions that our culture does not like at all is purity, not sexual immorality, and Paul's going to come back to that at the end of 13. 12.1 through 15.7 are all an explanation of living out these two verses. It's all an explanation of living out Romans 1 through 11. And it starts here, verse 3 through 8. Here's the first practical step. The first thing you kind of see cruising along, Paul's 101 here. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individual, mem- individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And he goes through and he says, we are the body. And yes, it means the universal church body, all Christians all of all time, but he's talking to specific people. He means, no, the group of y'all collected together as well. Not just universal and he's not talking about, well, I'm going here today, and then I don't like them, so I'm going to go here tomorrow. It's, that's not how bodies work. He's saying you all are a body. You're connected. 
the people in this room, the people in this room the next hour, the people that walk the hallways, we're a body and we're connected. And when we aren't connected, it hurts just like when our body has a cut or a disconnection going on. On top of that, not only are you connected, you're gifted. You each have a role to serve every single Sunday, official or unofficial, as you bump into people. You have an active role to serve. You're gifted, so be engaged and active. We do not have a passive faith that is just to sit and listen faith. It is a live-in-community faith. Live in community as you go outside the church faith. So get connected. Go to lunch with somebody after church. Connect with somebody during the week that you bump into at church. And Wednesday night at Awana when it starts up. And here and wherever you encounter each other as you are the body. Get connected at Sunday school and in small groups. There are things going on to, to connect more than just in this particular room. This is the start, not the total. Get connected. Serve somewhere. Kids ministry has been asking for help. Awana has been asking for help. I don't usually ask for help, but we need it all the time. I need more people working with junior hires, wonderful, squirrely, weird, and amazing junior hires. All of us need help. Teenagers could use some help. Serve Santa Maria needs help, both on that Saturday, but also the people that have led it have left the town for, for grace. We need some help with that. Car care, the tech team, coffee team. There are places to connect. You don't have to love working with kids to find a place to connect. We hope you care about kids, but not everybody wants to be in kids' ministry or WANA or youth. There are other places to serve, but there should be no detached body parts. Now, Grace, this is a challenge to us. If you see somebody becoming detached, reach out and grab them. But it's also to the person that's becoming detached, reach back in and hold on because we're part of a body. Continues on. 9 through 21. This one is like rapid fire. It's just one after the other. Sit down this week and just kind of think at different points about each of these. It's not even the verse because some of the verses have multiple things in them, but the many things that he says. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in veal. In, in zeal, excuse me, or veal. Don't be slothful in veal. That's a food product for those who don't know that word. In zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. That's to see you at the poll verse for this or theme for this year. It's coming up in a couple, couple weeks. I love that one. Just be constant in prayer. 11 and 12. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I love the qualifiers in that, by the way. We'll come back to that verse. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will keep burning coals on his head. I'm not going to come back to that one, but that's a fun one to wrestle with. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There's so many things in there. First, let love be genuine, or we're supposed to be genuinely loving. Love weaves in and out throughout this whole passage. Abhor evil. That seems obvious, but we don't always do it. But it also is probably a pointing back to chapter 1, verse, I think it's 32, when it talks about the sin of affirming other people's sinning. And then he comes back to living in light of grace, and he basically says, yeah, don't do that one. Abhor evil. Not evil people, but abhor evil. Sinful people, we should love by taking the gospel to them. Here's Christ. Let me introduce you to him. He has some things to say, including that he loves you and he wants to forgive you. Now follow him. And they respond or they don't. Hold fast to what is good. Be constant in prayer. Be generous and giving and hospitable. Bless your persecutors. That is as counter-human as you can think. What I should say, though, is that is counter-human culture, as you can think, because we were designed exactly for this. It is not impossible. It's living in light of grace. Rejoice and mourn accordingly and in, ki- in a kind and loving relationship. You ever walk into a room and somebody is the most serious person ever, and not just because they're an introvert, but because their day is going horribly And then you have that probably an extrovert come in, and it's as if they don't see this person at all, and they're just all cheering. There's a little meme going around. I I don't have them for the screen this week, but it was like two birds in a cage, and one is just as stoic as possible, and the other one is dancing to something. This verse is saying, hey, each of you pay attention to the other person. If somebody isn't just an introvert by nature, which was the meme, the introvert and the extrovert, but they're hurting, don't come in all energy. Come in and listen. But if somebody is all excited, I just got great news, and I'm having a a Luke 15, lost is found kind of celebration moment, don't be the buzzkill that walks into the room and is like, yeah, there's a fire going on like three states over. I think you should be a little more serious right now. But we do that all the time. And I don't just mean an introvert, extroverted way. I mean we're just not paying attention to the other person way. Come in and be excited with those that are excited. Rejoice. Life is great because we know God's grace. But also pay attention to the person who's struggling. The tyranny of this broken, sinful world is weighing them down. Don't walk in and be like, I'm going to Disneyland. Why are you sad? And they're like, well, I'm not going to Disneyland, or I hate Disneyland. You're weird, by the way, on that last one. But, no, I know, some of you don't like Disneyland. But still, match the room. Recognize if somebody lost a loved one. I so want to get in trouble with this verse, but I don't have time to do that. So see me afterwards if you want to get in trouble talking about what this verse means and how our culture really stinks at this. We are so bad. So bad at this. Be harmonious and not haughty. Leave vengeance to God. And then verse 18. If possible, because it might not be, as it depends on you, 
because that's all you can control. Live peaceably with all people. If you can do it, not on your strength, God's strength, and not because you don't feel like, or because you feel like it today, but you won't tomorrow. But no, this is a challenge and a goal. This is holiness. If it's possible because you're going to commit to it, you can't control them as it depends on you. Try to live peaceably. This isn't peace at all costs. We got to speak the truth in grace and, by the way, in the right relationship. If you don't have the right relationship, you're probably not the one that God intends to bring truth in that moment apart from just presenting the gospel. That's a different thing. It is not always accomplishable, but make sure you're not the one that's torching the bridge, but instead that you're the one working to repair it. And there's a bunch more in there that I didn't even get to, but then he turns to probably not your favorite verse. We like to quote this, like chapter 14, by the way, to get our way and to prove a point, but that's the only time we like this one. And I want you to remember the historical context when Paul writes this. 13 verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. It's not a maybe. It's a will. Those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. I know there are bad ones out there. Remember the context he's writing under. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what's good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. That's the purpose of government, by the way. That's an awesome statement on its own. For the government is God's servant for your good. God will hold them accountable, but that's not what Paul's talking about right now. Picking up partway through four. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he's a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. That's chapter 2, by the way. For because of, you, of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Don't forget that one. We're not very good at it. It's inherent to American culture and Saturday Night Live culture, those of us who grew up on it, to make fun of our leaders. And Paul says, but it's not okay. Ooh. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Submit to authorities. It's very simple. We just don't like it. There's no question in there. We have them, but Paul just keeps going. In the historical context, this is under rotten Roman Caesars. Every Caesar that the New Testament is written under is bad to the core. Some of them are so bad, they start making the other baddies look not so bad. But then you read about them, and they're bad. And that's when Paul writes, submit to them. So we come with the questions, well, what about when we don't have to? And Paul's like, did you see the guy I wrote this under? 
I didn't put a question mark in there. Submit to them. The only exception, which is rarer than we want it to be, by the way, is Acts 5.29, when Peter says, we must obey God rather than men. And the God there is not my interpretation of what I want God to be offended by. It's what God clearly says. When the government clearly tells me to disobey God's clear command or to obey them against God's clear command, that is the exception. The rest of the rule is submit. And not only that, but to honor and respect too. He just said to a set of Christians that would be reading this at some point shortly afterwards, you need to respect Nero. I don't care how much you hate the American presidents of any era, none of them have come close to Nero. None of them have come close to Nero. Go read about Nero. Now, is he the one that's in charge and Paul wrote it? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying he wrote it and then Nero comes into play. And by the way, the guy that was in charge at the time is just as bad. Well, not quite just as bad, but only because Nero comes after him. Nero is bad. He's one of the worst of all time. And Romans is sitting out there for Christians to read in the first century, and it says, submit, honor, respect, and yeah, even pay your taxes to the guy. But he doesn't use them correctly. No, he doesn't. But you still have to pay your taxes. Verse 7 through 10 continues on, and it's a neat transition that Paul does. This is another part of the artistry of Scripture. So I'm going to backtrack to 7 because it's not as clean as just a, a hard break. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue, revenue is owed. Now forget about the government for a minute because he's still talking about them, but he's going to change the corner and we already talked about that. Respect to whom respect is owed, not just government, whoever. Honor to whom or whomever honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. He transitions from the government, and we don't want to talk about them, and he says, okay, I'll let you off the hook. Now just love everybody. Just honor everybody. Show respect to everybody. And you can imagine one of us sitting there listening to Paul and be like, you didn't make it better. We went from the government, which was bad, to you went to everybody. Not just the people I like, you went to everybody. Not just my mom and dad who I know that I should respect and honor unless we have a super complicated relationship. And then you still said it, and I still got to wrestle with it, but yeah, it's a little different, but still. No, you went to everybody, but I don't like them. Yeah, you still owe them a debt of love that you can't pay off, by the way. So it goes from submitting to authorities to pay your debts. That's a fun one. FPU, Financial Peace University, and Dave Ramsey, by the way, especially good at tackling and getting out of the debt. Even better on money, go find some Crown Ministry stuff. It's got some even better and richer layers in there. It throws out the statement, no debt at all. And we love latching onto that and then excusing it for house debt. You can wrestle with that a little bit if you want to. I think mostly what he's saying, though, is don't take debt lightly. Don't be indebted if you don't have to. Scripture talks about all of these elsewhere, by the way. 
Don't be flippant, to, flippant towards debt and, and bankruptcy like our culture is. Pay your debts off if you get into them. And if you can avoid getting into them, then avoid getting into them. I don't have a problem with house debt, by the way. But I think we should wrestle through that before we just accept it and dismiss all other debt. The one exception to indebtedness is this. We have a forever debt of love for every other person that exists. And we can't get out of it, nor should we want to. That's his primary point. Yes, pay off your debts. But not this one. Always pay on this debt, but it is sitting out there tomorrow, even afterwards. You're never excused from it. But then verse 9, I love this. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And if you think he just got easy on you, you have not read Leviticus 19 lately. This is not going to be on your screen because I didn't tell the tech team that we were going here. Let me read it. It's a long section. Leviticus 19, he just pointed you back to it. Picking up at verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. That's a safety net. It's a kind of welfare. It's not the same as our welfare because you have to work for it, but it's a safety net. And Paul just pointed back to it. Jesus does too in Matthew 22, by the way. You shall not steal, picking up at 11. You shall not deal falsely. We like those. Shall not lie to one another. That's good. You shall not swear by the name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. He just dabbled into fair wages and fair wage practice, by the way. Wrestle with that one a little bit. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. We need to watch out for those with special needs in our community. Paul just referenced that. He pointed this back. You're like, no, he didn't. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. Yes, that's a quote from Leviticus 19 in a section that talks about loving your neighbor as yourself. He's pointing us back. Again, so is Jesus in Matthew 22. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor, defer to the great, but in righteousness shall judge your neighbor. He just talked about injustice, but he also talked about this. Our culture could learn from this. Don't treat the rich unjustly. Don't just assume the poor man's right, but neither assume the poor man's wrong. How about you live and rule justly? Novel concept. It's in Leviticus 19. Paul's pointing back to it. You shall shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance, Paul just talked about that, or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Verse 29, by the way, it throws in there, do not traffic your daughters or the daughters of your land, lest the land become depraved. And then it throws out this one, verse 32. Our culture needs to learn this one again. It used to know it and has lost it. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. Treat your elderly well. Love your neighbor as yourself. Paul went there. You just didn't hear it because we don't know the Old Testament well enough. We need to, 
but we don't always. Love your neighbor as yourself. Pay your debts. It's the Shema. Welfare, justice, fair wage, practice, special needs. It doesn't specify what those means. It just tells them we can't dismiss it. 13, 11 through 14, I won't, well, yeah, let me read it. 11 through 14. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. From sleep, Wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. We sing that. Or wake up, sleepyhead, if you're a parent walking in. Because if you cruise in with your guitar, I want a parent to do this, though, because it would be awesome. But if you cruise in with your guitar and sing, wake up, sleeper, you might traumatize the child, but you won't. You're just leading them in worship. But if you come in gently like a mom, wake up, sleepyhead. Okay, moms might not do that, especially with your teenage kids. But go and sing if you want to. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. More on that in Ephesians 6 and elsewhere. More on the body, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 12 and elsewhere. Paul expands on these things. In Romans, he just throws it out there real quick. Verse 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime. Okay, I'm about to read an awkward section of scripture. It's one verse. Parents, if you need to, cover your kids' heads, the ears. I mean, you can smother them, their head too if you want. Not too much, they gotta breathe. But you need to hear this because we all the time think, and I just heard this in some other ways, we need to go back to the early church. Okay, you ready? Got your kids prepped? This is the early church. This is not 1 Corinthians, the bad early church. This is Romans, the normal early church. Okay? Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality. He mentioned it twice. And sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. The early church, and we see it in the letters if we're reading it correctly, the early church was just like us. Actually, I hope we're not just like them. I hope we've learned from them. But I know our culture. And I work with our culture. And I know it needed to be said to them as well. Here's another one, because this is the one you hear the most. We need to go back like them. They didn't meet in churches like this. They didn't use pulpits. They didn't preach like this. All of that is mentioned in Scripture, by the way. It says in Acts that Paul was going to the synagogue for two years. The synagogue, ready? It's your average church size in a little country area. It's a church. And they went there until they got kicked out. You know what they did when they went to synagogue? They grabbed the scroll. Do you know how big those scrolls were? The scroll Isaiah is massive. Yes, at a certain point in history, this kind of pulpit came out. But either two dudes were holding the scroll when they were reading it, somebody else was reading it, or they had something to put it on, and the answer is they had something to put it on. You know what we would call that? We'd call it a pulpit. And it says, preach the word. Paul did it so long, he, he killed a guy, brought him back to life. This is my favorite example of it. So he could continue his sermon. He wasn't done yet. He's like, you don't get to die yet. I'm not finished. Come back. I mean, Paul's being nicer than that, but he did finish the sermon after he brought him back. He went all the way to breakfast. It's an axe. They met in churches, synagogues, until they got kicked out. They met in rented halls. They paid to rent halls. You know what we call that? We call that Calvary Chapel. So what they do, they rent out a warehouse and they convert it to a church to meet in until they're done. 
And if they had no, they met in homes, by the way, not like a five or ten person home. It was like 50 to 100. They met in the big courtyard home, just like we do. And then when there was no place to meet, it records that they met at the riverbed. That's the underground church. It's all in Acts. And you know what else is all throughout Scripture and Paul's having to correct them? They're acting just like we do. And we shouldn't, nor should they. He has to tell the early church in Rome, quit going to orgies. I don't think of the early church as that, and yet it was. I think of Corinth that way, but that's it. But it was Rome. And quit getting drunk. And quit being divisive and blowing up the church body. It's the same church. It's the same people that need to be told, be living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual, reasonable, rational, intelligent act of worship. And then he finishes it this way. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Wrapping up two big passages. There's so much to chew on. So many sermons in Romans. So many more than we could do. And I've crammed a lot of them together on different Sunday mornings. Here's a summary of it. Number one, be transformed. Really, it's be transformed as you're being transformed. But another way to put it, and this is from Hebrews, I think it's around chapter four. You are holy and you are being made holy. It is passive in that God is doing it to you and it is active because God tells us to do it. Both of those are in play at the same time and it is both realized Secured by Christ, you are holy no matter how bad you live this week if, Romans 10, 9 to 10, you'll put your faith in Christ. It is no less true of you. You're acting inappropriately and you're not living up to that holiness if you're sinning and embracing it and unrepentant. But if you are Christ's child, you are still secure in your holiness. You're just failing to enjoy it. That's Romans 12 and 13. And it is being realized that spiritual growth is the process of sanctification. And the challenge is live up, live up to your holiness. Embrace it and grow in it and get better at it. And love the people that you encounter more tomorrow and today than this morning and yesterday. That's the challenge of scripture. Be holy. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And God doesn't do what you're doing. So you shouldn't either. Submit. Submit to God. Submit to transformation. It's happening to us. Submit even to bad government, not coming into conformity to it, but because you're honoring God who is allowing it in the moment and will hold it accountable, by the way. Scripture's also clear on that. God will not let the Nero's off the hook. He will hold them accountable. But submit to it right up until it contradicts God's clear commands. Not just what you want God to say, but what he actually says. And then finally, it's the second part of the Shema. Deuteronomy 6, 4 is the Shema. It starts with that word, Shema. Hear, listen, O Israel. It's hear, listen, and do it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And then Jesus in Matthew 22, and Paul is doing the same thing here, tacks on Leviticus 19 and love your neighbor as yourself. Love others as you live out your faith. That 
is the command, the command and challenge, but also the reality of what is secured by the gospel that Paul's describing in Romans 12 and 13. Let's pray. Lord, help us to live holy. Like our early brothers and sisters in the first century, we struggle with this sometimes. And we thank you that you have secured that reality that we are holy. Or at least that you view us as holy even when we fail. But Lord, help us to live up to that. To enjoy it because you've empowered us to live holy through the Holy Spirit, that we can live holy this afternoon and this week to your glory and to our personal growth and benefit, but also to the blessing of those around us as we faithfully love you and love others. We praise your name. Amen.